Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. First off, I want to apologize uh, for not having an episode up this last week. Um, that was because I was quite ill and I was coughing and hacking the whole time. And I, I think that would be very uncomfortable to listen to as a listener. So um, and in that eventuality, we decided not to record last week, but we are back with a great guest this week. David Marcus is a reporter for the New York Post, where he reports and writes on subjects of contemporary political interest, all kinds of things. Um, he's also the author of the book Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. Um, in full disclosure, he was also a former colleague of mine at The Federalist. Um, and one of the things that I really love about Dave's work is that he comes to it with a totally different perspective than I think most people do in the political world. So um, his background is actually in theater um, and he, he's an actor. Uh, which is very different than most people, I think, in politics with a poli-sci background or they're, they're the kind of class president types. Um, Dave has a totally different background. And I think that really comes through in his work. Um, and he also has this really great ability to talk to people from all walks of life and to really communicate their stories in a way that I think is a lot more human than sort of analytical. Um, and that really comes through in this book. So uh, welcome, Dave, to High Noon. Thank you, Ines. So in this book, you not only interview folks in the administration, the Trump administration, um, your, your book kind of ends with the election of 2020, um, but you not only interview folks like in the administration, you interview Tucker Carlson, um, you interview a lot of people in politics, but you also interview, um, you talk a lot about uh, some of your friends that you were hanging out with and their perspectives on the, on the, um, on, on the COVID pandemic. And then also even you, you talked to um, a, a sex worker in Las Vegas and, and what that did to her trade um, in terms of, of, of getting more or fewer customers. Um, you know, how did you decide who to put into this book? This is really more of a like a <clears throat> memoir of that time, um, even though you have a lot of great facts in it as well. Yeah, that was a challenge uh, right off the bat. Um, when I started work on the book, one of the one of the books I wanted to model it off of was um, Molly Hemingway and, Ka and Carrie Severino's book uh, Justice on Trial about the Kavanaugh things. I really liked that book. You know, um, Molly was also a colleague at the Federalist, so I, I sort of talked to her about it. I, what became clear as I started writing was that. Uh, you know, whereas that was a story and most books are about something that literally affects some small group of people and the rest of us are sort of paying attention to it, this affected everyone. Um, and, and so there there really was nobody who, who wasn't a part of the story. And I think the first kind of outside the administration or really outside of the box interview that I did was there's one point relatively early on where I interview a guy who's in the advertising industry because... You know, I think viewers will remember in the early days of the lockdown, there were all these ads and they were like the same ad. It was like piano music and shots of empty streets. And then you had shots of first responders and, you know, we're all in this together, all the slogans and every ad was the same one. And I was very curious, right? Like, how did, how did this happen? There wasn't some meeting of all the advertising executives to say, like, we're all going to run the same ad. Um, and this guy was really able to walk me through why that happened, which really had a lot to do with sort of like lawyers and and copycatting, right? Because it was something where like they really didn't want to get it wrong. Um, and so there was one sort of safe way to do it. And so they all did that. Um, and once I did that interview, I realized that I the, the, the two most important functionaries in the lockdown story were the government and the media, obviously the government because they couldn't 
literally impose lockdowns, but the lockdowns weren't really imposed for the most part. Um, for the most part, we consented to them. And that had a lot to do with the media. So then I chose, those were the two areas where I really chose to put most of my focus. Yeah. And, and you, um, it, it was kind of a weird experience to read this book because it really reminded me, took me back to the mentality in, in April, May of 2020, right? Um, where in, in DC and then when New York, where, where you were, there was this eerie silence on all of the streets. This is before people, um, there, before there was a lot of the research that said that, for example, walking around outside was not a danger um, in terms of transmission. So the streets were eerily empty, except for the sirens, right? Um, the the sirens of the emergency vehicles are taking people um, to and from the hospital. So you really bring us back there, and then and then you kind of um, seem to then question that we perhaps even at that point made some decisions um, on the basis of fear rather than science. Yeah, I, I think that what we've never been able to do with this thing, and, and this goes right up to this present moment, is come up with some kind of rational balance um, between legitimate competing interests in terms of like what the risk to human life from COVID was versus what the risk to kids not being in school or people having to wear masks or shutting down businesses, you know, the, the whole parade of horribles that lockdowns brought. Um, we were never really able to have a rational discussion or, or a rational consideration of, um, you know, people were going to die one way or the other, in fact, both ways. Um, and we got into this sort of mentality of, of you know, if it saves one life, and that's not how public policy or human life operates, right? I mean, like, if you let your daughter do gymnastics, if you let your son play football, there's a risk that they could get pretty seriously hurt. And so you weigh that and, and you know, you, you make the decision because there are also benefits to those activities. And I think we just so utterly failed as a, as, as a country to do that um, for, for a myriad of reasons. But, um, yeah, we did a really bad job with it. Well, one of those reasons is that, you know, when you hire people who are experts in in their field, they're often going to look at, um, and, Tom, and Thomas Sewell famously wrote about this, but they're often going to look at essentially a, a single factor analysis, right? Um, we had a lot of public health bureaucrats who were, as you say, that their goal was to get to COVID, to zero COVID cases, right? Um, and you would think that in our system, the appropriate balance then would be, okay, yes, you um, you experts, you, um, you know, you medical professionals, you're here to give advice to the political branches, which are then going to weigh um, that goal of making uh, sure that there are zero COVID cases against all of the other things as part of political judgment, right? Against economic factors, against um, what might happen in, in extended lockdowns to um, the psychology of children if they can't go to school, right? Um, so so these, these aren't decisions that are made quote unquote, on the basis of science, they necessarily involve political judgment. I mean, it seems like kind of the story you're putting out in this book is that we abdicated political judgment wholly into the hands of experts. And like, they don't, they don't need to be nefarious. Uh, they, they, they are looking at a single factor, whereas our political, uh, our political leadership kind of abdicated their role in balancing that factor versus all the other, you know, public policy implications. 
Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's 1000% right. I mean, very early on, you would often hear people say, you know, there's no place for politics in all of this. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, as you point out, like Anthony Fauci might be an expert in, um, you know, viruses and infectious disease. He's not an expert on unemployment or education or, or a, a whole range of public policy um, aspects that were affected by the choices that we made in terms of lockdown. So obviously these needed to be political choices. And, and it got even worse because all across the country, state legislatures just said to governors like, okay, you know, be the emperor, right? Um, for, for a year, I mean, for longer. So a lot of these powers like still exist. This is unprecedented in American history. And, and one of the points that I make in the book about this move to uh, empower governors to really just do whatever they want is that <clears throat> governors don't do constituent services, right? As, as, as citizens, when we need to go to our politicians and say, hey, I need to be able to open my restaurant. I need to be able to go to church. I, you know, I need to be able to send my kid to school. You don't go to your governor. You go to your state assemblyman. You go to your state senator. Um, and that that was gone. Uh, that was just all gone. Uh, and thankfully, we're now starting to see states, even blue states like, like Pennsylvania, start to pull back, um, not only pull back some of these powers right now, but uh, Michigan just passed a law that, that changes it so that this can't happen again. Um, so if there's a silver lining, like that might be it. We need to realize that you can't hand total dictatorial power to governors for a year. It's a disaster. Right. And and um, even though governors have that kind of broad power in, in emergencies, generally most emergencies are short term, right? That 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 would be the the justification of handing decision making power to one um, one elected official rather than the normal legislative channels, right? It's that legislatures move slowly. Um, they take into account, as you say, constituent services and, and everything, but um, a single actor can make those decisions quickly um, in, in an emergency. But but that rationale gets weaker and weaker in, over time, right? Um, when, when we're talking about already, you know, well over a year, um, pushing towards a year and a half of, of dealing with this pandemic, uh, that, that rationale certainly at least starts to get weaker, if not disappears altogether. Uh, it, it does, it does get weaker. Um, but when you think about the precedent that we just created, um, if a sufficient number of Americans can be convinced that climate change is a public health crisis, uh, or that racism is a public health crisis, which in fact, several states and localities have already declared, right? Um, <clears throat> then we now have a precedent in place where for those reasons, or really anything that we determine to be a public health crisis, um, we can just suspend the constitution and allow governors to, to you know, rule as kings. So I, I think more than anything else, that's what we need to look at in all of this and, and make sure uh, never happens again. The, the the problem was partisanship, not politics. We needed more politics, not less politics. Yeah, and I, I guess I totally agree with that in a sense, even though you and I um, have quite different views about the virus itself and what was necessary to contain it. You tend to be um, more uh, longer term or almost completely against the lockdowns. I, th I think they were an appropriate tool at one time um, that perhaps that that rationale doesn't extend for month after month after month. Um, but we have we have different views on that. But I, I, I think we can agree on this, that this is at the end of the day, a political 
judgment. It has to be is because of, of the reasons we were talking about, right? Like this isn't a single factor. We're not only concerned with coronavirus in the world. There are many other things that can kill people. And, and even if, and that's just restricting uh, the analysis to things that can kill people, right? There's right. also a factor of quality of life and, um, and freedom and, and constitutional liberty that is, is not quantified in a single factor analysis. But let's talk about the difference between competency and messaging, right? Because um, I, I will fully admit that I, in April and May, was completely fooled by Governor Andrew Cuomo. He did not share my politics, right, at the time, but he was giving these really competent-sounding briefings, right? Whereas oftentimes, I mean, some of the Trump briefings were really good. The Trump administration briefings were really good. Um, but other times they, you know, the president was distracted. He, he did, he played his kind of usual um, role in, in goading the media, which, which I think felt very different to people in April 2020 than it did, for example, in the preceding part of his administration, because it's one thing to dunk on the media. We all know they, they deserve it. Um, but when people are really scared and looking for a projection of confidence from their leaders, there were times where I thought that Trump's messaging did not project that, whereas Andrew Cuomo's did. And then we we go back months later and look at their actual records, which you do really well in this book. And we see that actually the, the projection of competence is not at all the same thing as actual competence. Could you go into a little bit what, what some of the, the decisions that the Trump administration did early on? Um, that didn't get a lot of press versus some of the decisions that the Cuomo administration in New York made um, that at the time, one seemed competent and one didn't. And it seems like the truth was almost the reverse. Yeah, in a, in a lot of ways it was. I mean, uh, listen, th there was, the, I can't imagine anything as poorly suited to Trump's rhetorical skill set um, as as this particular crisis. Um, you know, his his sort of hyperbolic nature and uh how should i put this um his his sometimes wavering relationship with the literal truth um work in in some context i think they work in foreign policy i think they work in some domestic policy negotiations i think they can be really effective messaging tools not with this um and a great example you know the very first thing i wrote about the coronavirus i believe it was titled something like trump needs to shut up about coronavirus and he had gone on Sean Hannity the night before. I, I don't have the exact date. I believe it was the first week of March. So this is all really just starting to kick in. He goes on Hannity. And at the time, the World Health Organization was saying that this had an infection fatality rate of two, three, maybe even 4%, which is crazy, right? Which is, which is vastly more deaths than even we experienced. And we experienced a lot of deaths. He went on Hannity and he said, I have a hunch that it's a lot lower than that, um, probably even less than 1%, just, you know, from conversations I've had with people. And the media blew up. And I mean, I did too. It was like, that's like going into your doctor who says like, you've got stage four cancer, but I have a hunch you'll be fine, right? Like that's, that's not how you say that. Um, and he was pilloried and he lost some trust because that's not the way you talk about it. He was also exactly right. And in that interview, he explained why he was right. The reason he was right was that asymptomatic people weren't being tested. By early April, Dr. Jay uh, Bachara at Stanford would do seroprevalence tests that would show that way, way, way more people had COVID than we knew had COVID. And therefore the infection fatality rate was a lot lower. 
Um, that messaging never really caught back up in the media, unfortunately. So that was a prime example of where Trump was saying something important and true in a really ineffective way and just lost the thread utterly. Meanwhile, an example on the other side, you would have Cuomo in those early days, you know, seeming really confident, but on a day by day basis going back and forth between New York won't shut down, New York will shut down. We need to do contact tracing. In fact, by the time we were seeing these cases in New York, contact tracing was probably pointless. Um, you know, contact tracing can be effective when you have a really small number of cases. But again, we had so many more cases than we knew we did because we weren't testing asymptomatic people um, that we were probably well past the point where, I mean, remember Bloomberg was going to have an army of contact tracers? Do you remember that? It was like a week and a half news cycle where um, Cuomo was going to put um, former Mayor Bloomberg in charge of the contact tracing, and this was going to be great. And like, look at this wonder. None of that happened. It just didn't happen. It sounded good. <laughs> That's right. I mean, he sounded good. That was the that was the whole um, you know appeal of Governor Cuomo. And at one point, people were talking about whether or not he might replace Joe Biden on the ticket because he was so massively popular because of these. And we've really seen. That that flip, um, the the politics of this uh, flip, um, almost almost the opposite, right? Where we have folks like Gavin Newsom now, Governor Gavin Newsom in California, under threat of recall, largely because of of keeping in place really strict restrictions in California far longer than than other governors, um, and for his own personal hypocrisy and not following those restrictions, those turned out to be issues that really resonated with a lot of people who were not getting interviewed for, you know, New York Times articles or Washington Post articles. One of the myths that you go into here in this book is, which by the way, I can hold it up. Here it is. Um, but one of the myths you go into is that you know, we had this rhetoric in the beginning um, of, of us all being in this together. And, and in some, you know, in some sense, as you said early on in the podcast, we were all in it together in the sense that everybody was subject um, to, you know, potentially getting infected with the coronavirus. Um, it was a scary time. We, you know, uh, were afraid to, to speak to our neighbors or to get too close to our neighbors um, or our friends. And, and so in that sense, we were going through similar fears, but we were what, what ended up happening is that, in fact, different uh, groups of people ended up experiencing the lockdowns completely differently. Can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about um, who, who turned out, and this is a weird word to say, but I think it's the right word, who benefited from the pandemic and the lockdowns and who really took the brunt of them? I mean, I did. You know, uh, I got a book deal, right? Uh, a lot of people in the media did. Um you know, I was very, very cognizant of the fact that I already worked for home. I was New York correspondent for the Federalist at the time. So I basically worked out of my apartment anyway. Um, my paychecks didn't stop. In fact, I got a stimulus check. Um, you know, uh, so uh, for a lot of people in the media class, um, it, it was a very different experience than being a waiter who, you know, loses your job or being a, you know, a truck driver who loses their job. And, you know, I live in a neighborhood in, in, in Brooklyn that's sort of very, you know, residential. It's not a well-off neighborhood, but it's you know, solidly middle class, you know. Um, and I started seeing lines around the block of people waiting for food. I mean, this is not, 
I'd never seen anything like that in my lifetime. Um, and it became quite clear to me that the story that the media was telling us about this, you know, sort of adventure where we all play camp in our house um, while we get our paychecks was very different than the reality that a lot of people in the world were facing um, in the rest of the country were facing. Um, that was, you know, for a lot of people, a fairly existential level of crisis. There was also an effect on the different businesses that did better or worse, right? So, um, for example, Amazon raked in additional, I think it was an additional billions in profits over the course of the pandemic than they had the year before, while a lot of bodegas or restaurants or um, other kind of small businesses or even large businesses who had no way to really put their services online or or remotely really, really suffered. So we have this bifurcation. Um, yeah. What do you think that the impact of that bifurcation is going to have going forward, even as hopefully we reach the end of this pandemic as vaccination rates are rising again, um, and, and as we're kind of experiencing a third and hope or fourth, hopefully last wave of this that doesn't seem to be resulting in the same level of hospitalizations or death as the previous waves are. Um, as we move out of cross their fingers out of the pandemic era. Um, how are the, the the impacts of that business bifurcation and the different ways that I, I'm I'm gonna use the 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 word that's unpopular on the right, like essentially different classes of people, um, how they experience the pandemic, how's that gonna change our politics going forward? I think it's I think it's already having a huge impact on the way conservatives uh, and and some on the left, but but more really conservatives think about big tech because you're very right to point out that Amazon was one of the winners here, right? In in general, big tech was a winner because when you make people stay at home, sort of atomized in their house, then all of the things that all these machines that go were. Um, do for us become more valuable and everything that actually happens out in the you know world of, of hugs and handshakes it, it diminishes, right? Um, what we realized, I, I think by a few months in, was that the same big tech that was bringing us our Big Macs uh, was also determining what news we were allowed to see um, about things like the lockdown itself. Um, this created an enormous, just an enormous conflict of interest in that this same sector of the economy that was reaping incredible profits um, was in control of the information that kept those profits rolling in and that kept these lockdowns in place. And I think that what you, I think you had already seen a few politicians like maybe, you know, Holly and a few others, <coughs> pardon me, um, who were wary of big tech, but still had to appreciate this sort of the orthodoxy of conservatives as small government, and these are private businesses, they can do whatever they want. Um, I, I think when we saw what big tech was able to do in terms of the lockdowns, that changed for a lot of people, it changed for me. And I think, in, in fact, I know from, from politicians who I speak to now you know, as a reporter, um, at least in private, and in some cases in public, um, Republicans don't care if it's private business anymore. Um, this threat is too big and it has to be dealt with. And I think that's a, that's a change in our politics that we're going to see uh, over the next several years and, and, and you know, probably going forward even beyond that. 
you talk about atomization and and really, I mean, these were conversations that were happening both on the right and the left before the pandemic and before the lockdowns about a sense of, of um, alienation, the fact that people did not have as thick ties to family, church, community, um, real world interaction as they used to, perhaps. Um, we have folks like Tim Carney writing um, his his book about alienation, Alienated America. And there, there was this kind of conversation going on that was coupled with Gen Z being a generation that was in, you know, um, even more online than perhaps um, my generation of millennials and definitely more online than Gen X, which is your generation. Um, you know, how, how has this essentially enforced online period of a year and a half accelerated perhaps some of these um, trends whereby your digital self becomes or seems in some way more real uh, to a lot of people than the the flesh and blood selves um, of ourselves walking around you call it a hugs and handshakes world like you know we can call it derisively the meat suit world right um but but it seems like our our relationship with the body and physicality was already being attenuated by social media and by technology and now we've had a year and a half where um that that digital self was essentially the only self right yeah I mean, how's that going to impact the psychology of especially Gen Z, but even the rest of us going forward? I, I mean, I, I, I'd like to say, I, I'd like to be hopeful, but I, I don't feel hopeful about it. Um, I, I, I think it's going to, I do think it, it's going to further this alienation. And it's not only alienation from um, each other. In a lot of cases, it's alienation from reality. I mean, you know, it may seem strange to bring something like, you know, um, the transgender debate in, into something like this, but I, I, I think it actually has a place because it's, it's not just transgenderism, it's trans everything. It's like, if you can really be that avatar in the video game that is most of your reality, then why would any of these rules apply, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, there are very broad trends going on in, in terms of the way in which the human mind interacts with computers, um, you know, even even people, <clears throat> you know, with sort of like the idea that a human mind could ultimately be downloaded in, into a computer. I mean, enormous, huge questions um, that the only the only thing I've ever really been able to compare it to is Herman Hesse wrote a great book called The Glass Bead Game, um, and it takes place in, I mean, he wrote it I guess in like the fifties, or it takes place in what would have been a futuristic Europe, right? And there's really only two forces left. Um, there's the players of this esoteric glass bead game, which you could, in a weird way, compare to the internet, even though he couldn't have imagined the internet. But it's just sort of like every type of piece of information and knowledge interplaying together and and these really smart people are able to like sort of put them in boxes um the only other one is the roman catholic church right and that's it like the, the, these are the two extremes that you end up with and i think we're you know we are sort of moving in that direction to an extent and you know it's interesting like there have been several people i've known is I, I sort of wear my catholicism on my sleeve a little bit um there have been several people that I've known who somewhat unexpectedly 
um, told me that the Catholic Church is something that they've been looking to join or, or become a part of or get back to throughout all of this, even just anecdotally going to mass, I just see a lot more people there, like maybe because they weren't allowed to or whatever it was. Um, but to me, that's the only hope um, is that, you know, a push for sort of organized religion and my preference is the Catholic church, um, but, but that that kind of uh, push is what can push back against the atomization of online life. But uh, man, it's an uphill battle. Well, we're, we're seeing the opposite trend, right? The famous rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, yeah. uh, among which I count myself, um, where there are more people who not only um, don't consider themselves you know, part of a faith tradition in, in the abstract metaphysical sense, but also don't have that concrete reason to get together um, with people with other people they may not know, their their neighbors that maybe then become friends, that to actually have that kind of thick community that is provided by in-person religious organizations. And it doesn't really seem like there's going to be a replacement, even from the non-theological perspective, just from the, the human yeah. community perspective. It doesn't seem like modern life has really provided human beings with um, another way to have some kind of immediate and physical commonality, common purpose and shared life with the people around them. No, I, th I think that's absolutely right. I mean, and, and it does go beyond uh, church. It's, you know, the Rotary Club or it's 4-H or it's, uh, it's called 4-H, right? I grew up in Philly. I started pulling that, pulling that out of a vague memory, but wh whatever these things are like bowling leagues, like, you know, there were things you watch sitcoms from the 1950s and 60s and like, you know, everybody's got these activities that they do in the evening, you know, whatever they were. Um, and those are by and large, at least in sort of like modern urban American life, um, things that really don't exist so much anymore. Um, uh, and and yeah, we, we, we haven't done a very good job of replacing them. Um, you know, I think even performance, like like, like even the arts um, have done a poor job. You know, theater is not as well attended as it once was. Dance, you know, comedy does a little better, but, but, but you know, there's a struggle even there. Even before the pandemic, the, <clears throat> these were trending in the wrong direction. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know, you know, as you mentioned at the top, I spent, you know, the first 15 years or so of my adulthood involved in theater. And so... I, I was, you know, producing shows and my whole deal was like, how many people can I get in a room? Right. Because like, that's how I made my money. Um, and, you know, I still like that feeling of having a lot of people in a room. But I, I mean, there's just fewer and fewer opportunities to do that and, and less points of interest that bring people together. Why, why is it that the the arts in the United States are so overwhelmingly left-wing because i mean that, that hasn't been true in all places in all times right um it, it, why do you think that the theater community or um really out of the, the examples you mentioned only comedy is somewhat of an exception in the sense that there's at least there are some comedians who will target left-wing pieties for mockery i mean i don't even know that to the extent that makes them quote-unquote conservative but that will sort of um, target at least uh, as part of their act, they'll, they, they will go after things that are, are, um, 
you know, taken for granted on the left. But really the other arts, you know, Hollywood, theater, um, even fine art, uh, painting, sculpture, this seems to be now an overwhelmingly left-wing space. Um, was that the case when you got into it? Um, or or has it changed over, over the course of the more recent decades? And then why do you think that is? It, it was. Um, I mean the left was not as far left in 1998 as it is today. So it was a different kind of left, but I mean, it was all left. There were no Republicans. I wasn't even a Republican yet. Um, uh, there was everyone, every once in a while, there was like the weird, like actual libertarian who kind of just liked to pick fights. Right. But um, you know, there were no Republicans. The reason for it, I believe, and I believe this very strongly um, is the not-for-profit movement taking over uh, art forms like theater and art forms like dance. And I do think that comedy is the exception that proves the rule here. Because um, when you think about not-for-profits in terms of theater and dance and that stuff, you're talking about universities and colleges, talking about non-profit performing groups or companies, which is pretty much everything outside of Broadway. You're talking about nonprofit granting organizations. All of the, all three of, of the, the legs of that stool are incredibly progressive and they produce incredibly progressive art um, that doesn't pay for itself. It doesn't have to pay for itself because it's all, it's basically all funded by donors. And every once in a while, something breaks out and actually makes money. Um, stand-up comedy is different, right? You don't really get a master's degree in stand-up comedy the way that you do for directing or acting or screenwriting. Um, the way you get that job is still pretty much to show up at the club and either people laugh or they don't. And if they laugh, you get more gigs. If they don't, you don't. Um, and, and that is absolutely why you see more ideological diversity in the world of stand-up comedy than you do in any of these other art forms. Um, so I think if conservatives want to compete in that cultural space, two things need to happen. One, they need to pay some attention to it, which um, they haven't done, right? I mean, Andrew Breitbart was warning about this over a decade ago and, and the, the call still hasn't been heard. Um, but second of all, I think they do need to break up some of these nonprofit systems that really just bar entry unless you have a rich uncle who's gonna give you $15,000 for your theater company. So what are some of those nonprofit systems? You mentioned the NEA, right? Um, so there are government government grants, and then yep. there are essentially donor grants connected to art schools. Is that how this works? I mean, it all is, right? I mean, if you give a hundred bucks to a to a theater company or a dance company, some of that money is coming out of the general fund of the government, right? Like that's how a tax deductible organization works. So essentially, you know, the theater company that I the, the, that I was a co-producer for, we were never a not-for-profit. So we always kind of had to find unique ways to cover our costs. The general model is that you set up a not-for-profit, you get yourself a board. Hopefully, again, you're well-connected enough to have you know board members who have some money to kick in as well. Um, you hold a gala, you go fundraise. And really, generally speaking, the goal is to make about half of your money back through ticket sales, maybe. I mean, that's great right, if you're able to do that. And so it becomes this kind of like perverse economic model where you really don't have creative destruction because if you're coming out of Columbia or Yale drama school and you're trying to start a theater company, your first question is not, how do I get an audience? Your first question is, how do I get a grant? 
Um, and until that gets turned around, nothing changes. So what would you say then to the objection? Because I, I, I feel like um, if I was coming to this conversation with a, a different perspective than the culture warrior that I am, um, I, I would worry about, you know, um, that that great art would not find it. I mean, so much of, of what we consider great art did not find a productive paying audience while the artist was alive, right? Um, and I mean, so how do we balance the need to create a space where artists can, in fact, do um, create art or do their thing, right? Um, but still have it, because I, I think you're right, like we, we've gone from having a sort of um, a marketplace of different types of art that appeal to different kinds of people to almost an exclusively avant-garde way where, you know, most artists are only appealing, as you say, either to to grants, donors, or they're appealing to a handful of critics who usually work for elite media outlets, right? They're not really, they're not really trying to get an audience. They're not really aiming at, let's say, uh, you know, the average uh, middle-class American who might want to, to come see, uh, come see a play on Broadway, for example, even, um, although that's probably more aimed at the average American than a lot of aspects of art. But I mean, how do we balance between, yes, you want a space for some avant-garde, you know, sensibilities um, that are are beyond what can attract a mass audience, but still have some connection to um, like, like to the broader massive people who are actually, you know, um, and, and giving them an entry into wanting to interact with the art world. Cause I think the flip side of how we've, we've set it up now is that the average American thinks that they don't have a lot to understand or gain from interacting with the art world because it seems so avant-garde, so like sort of, um, you know, uh, isolated or, or, um, I'm searching for a word here, but so internal in its interest that mm -hmm. it's, it's very difficult for the average viewer to even feel competent enough to, to experience or break through or actually be a member of an audience for a lot of our art. Yeah, I, I think the audience is right. And I think that's why they're not showing up. In fact, I, <clears throat> I the audience is almost always right. Like, like, like almost by definition, but like, this is your job is to entertain people. Um, your job isn't ultimately to make everybody stop be racist, stop being racist, however you define that. Your job isn't ultimately to, uh, you know, settle some class conflict. Your job is to, as we were just talking about, get people in a room um, to have a good time with each other. If you can do that other stuff too, okay, like that's fine. Um, but I don't even know that I accept the the basic concept that like, the American people don't want, um, or that most people don't want complicated or, or high or fine art. Like Fred Siegel wrote a great book called Revolt Against uh, the Masses, where he talks about what the average TV uh, lineups for a Saturday afternoon were in the 1950s and the early 60s. And I mean, you had Leonard Bernstein with the, the Philharmonic have an incredibly popular show about classical music. You had Tennessee Williams plays, you had Shakespeare plays. You, you had an enormous appetite for this. You know, people, you're probably too young for this, but people my age will remember their parents or grandparents having these leather bound volumes of the great books of the world, right? Those sold like wildfire and they cost a lot. I, I mean, they, they cost a lot of money um, and people bought them. And at some point, the elite in our country kind of decided like, you know what, 
that's not for a truck driver. That's not for a bus driver. That's not for the guy who, who makes pizzas, you know, um, that's for somebody else. And I, I think the not-for-profit system reinforces that. And quite frankly, I don't worry about um, not having any art if we don't have the NEA. I mean, we've always have had art. It's, it's arguably the oldest thing in humanity, right? I mean, you look at somebody like Václav Havel, not only was the communist government in Prague not giving him money to do his art, they were like trying to arrest him, but he still made it, right? So, I mean, the art's not going to stop. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not worried about that and, and nobody's owed it, right? Like nobody gets to get out of like, you know, two years of, of a master's degree at some Ivy league school and be like, Hey, I did my time. Like now you have to give me a hundred thousand dollars a year to be an artist. That's not how it goes. Um, when, when did this flip happen from the 1950s where, um, as you say, and I agree there, there was just, um, a way more there there was a, a lot more distributed of what we might call like great art um, throughout popular culture, even, I mean, even thinking about 1950s versions of Mickey Mouse cartoons, right? Sure. Or um, they, they often were scored with with uh, classical music, great classical music. Um, they, they made references to Shakespeare. Um, so even at the child entertainment level, our, our pop culture was infused with something of, of higher value. Mm -hmm. um, and that was popular, as you say. It was popular and people spent large proportions of their income on it. Um, I'm wondering if that changed maybe with the camp movement, um, which seemed to be contemptuous yes. of what, what we might call like middle brow taste. That right? is, that um, is that Siegel's only theory. Esoteric was, you think it changed with the camp but, movement? No, that's Siegel's theory. Uh, he, oh, he, okay. he calls it kitsch, but, but, but yeah, basically Siegel's theory. Uh, my theory veers more in the direction of the that that is also the period of time when the nonprofits really came in and and um, uh, you know late fifties early sixties is when most of those laws passed. But yeah, that's the period. I mean, er, you know, early to mid sixties is when the change happened. I, I think we could probably look at a bunch of reasons why. Um, but yeah, that's that's when it changed and. By the 70s, you know, it was completely different. Yeah, that's that's so interesting because it parallels so many things that that um, just seem uh, we take for granted, right? Like the the idea that that cities, um, for example, have high crime, um, mm -hmm. that poverty correlates with high crime rates. Like these are things that have not always been true, but since the 1970s, we basically accept as ironclad rules. And one of those things is that. Um, you know, the average American is interested in patriot patronizing the arts or patronizing. I don't know how you say that word, but patronizing the arts, um, uh, you know, especially fine art. But you're, you're right to say that that's completely not inevitable and, in fact, was different um, at at one time. So are, are, how do you think? Let me let me wrap and tie these two subjects together, the subject of your book and then the subject um, or, or the uh, profession that you have dedicated most of your life to until you became a writer, um, you know, what is the future of those kinds of live audience events that you seem to be um, so attached to? I mean, you, you, you mentioned that you're not sure if people even post coronavirus, um, if, if, you know, sort of people will be so digitized, atomized online that they're not going to be interested in attending these kinds of events, or do you think that there's going to be 
a uh, resurgence as, as uh, you said, more people are going to your, your attending mass um, at your church. Maybe there'll be a similar uh, resurgence in people just who really want to get that feeling of being in the middle of hundreds or perhaps thousands of people that has been denied to us both by the pandemic and then the attendant lockdowns. I mean, it's, that's the tension, right? Um, I don't think that we reached the orgiastic levels of the summer of 2021 that a lot of people were uh, expecting or looking forward to. Um, I also don't think that everybody, you know, stayed, you know, hidden in their apartments. I mean, you know, Manhattan's popping more more than it was. Um, but it's a real tension. It's very strange to be watching television today and, you know, watch a certain news network. And it's like, I'm seeing pictures of, of these hospitals that they say are, are almost to capacity, right? And I'm seeing these charts about COVID numbers. And I'm seeing the president saying, put a mask on. And then it cuts to commercial break. And it's an ad for a, a concert in Central Park in August, right? That, that That's supposed to be, oh, we're, we're, we're bringing it all back, right? And it's like, wait a minute, like on the one hand, you're telling me the Delta variant is like way more transmissible. And I get it that the Central Park things outside, like people have to get there or whatever. Um, so these messages are just just utterly cross purposes. Um, and I don't know where it ultimately leaves um, the American people. I, 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 I would like to think one thing that gives me a weird hope, even though my son desperately wants one of those like headset VR things, um, and I, and even though I probably will get him one, uh, at some point, um, those have not taken off quite the way that I think a lot of people expected. Like Google glass was a failure that people are buying the headsets, but it's not this overwhelming thing. And I do think there is a level at which when you put one of those things on and you are so cut off from the actual world around you, I think it still makes people uncomfortable. Now that might change. Right. I mean, if you've seen the, the movie Ready Player One, that that in, envisions a world in which that has changed. But I still think today, if you put one of those things on someone's head after about six or seven minutes, they kind of want to know if someone's standing behind them or like if anybody's in the room or whatever. So there there may be that the human mind and, and the and human emotions, that there is a, a limit. Right. And, and that at a certain point, it's not enough or conversely, it's too much. And, and we need that regular human interaction. Um, but boy, I don't know. Um, I, I, I mean, I guess we're going to find out. You know, um, that brings up a final point, a final question I have for you. And, and um, do you do you think that we've been denied catharsis in a way um, after this pandemic because the issues during the pandemic became so politically contentious for various reasons, because they became part of our cultural war battles, because, um, you know, we are at each other's throats about this. This definitely wasn't a coming together moment um, for America. Do you, do you think that we've been denied? Because I kind of expected at the beginning of this that when it would be when it was over, that we would all come back together and have a huge party and cry and hug each other and say, it's over, it's over, right? Um, we suffered through this historical pandemic and now that's come to an end um, and, and we can enjoy each other's company. And I thought there would be like this explosion of catharsis. And what we're seeing instead is that we're, we're kind of separating even more. It seems like where some people's pandemics ended, you know, a year ago, 
And a lot of people's pandemics, it almost seems like they are never, there's very little that other than going to absolutely zero COVID cases that's ever going to make them go back to a pre-pandemic normal. I mean, are, are we denied, have we been denied that catharsis? And then what does that mean for our future going forward in the next, you know, year or two, three years? I, I mean, we, we probably have. I mean, it, maybe it's been a slow catharsis because it's like now you can go back inside a restaurant, then you couldn't, then you could. Now you can do this, now you can do this. So, I mean, there's been this sort of slow opening up. But you make a really good point about um, the difference depending on where you are in the country, right? Like very early on in this, um, and again, I was still at the Federalist, right? And I was, I was on like one of the lists was we were like, you know, talking about stories or whatever. And I said, I said, is this the most significant crisis that the United States has faced since? And I can't remember if I pulled a Joe Biden and went civil war, or like what I went with, but I, but I went with something a long time ago, right? Um, and the managing editor, our friend Joy Pullman, replied back relatively quickly with what crisis, right? And, you know, Joy lives in, in not in rural Indiana, but in, in, in not in urban Indiana, right? Um, and her life never, right? Indiana wasn't one of those states like Florida and New York or Texas or California that became the like, we're going to put all our attention here and like, you know, said this one's good, this one's bad. But there were states like Indiana that really didn't lock down all that much. Um, and it didn't get noticed. And people's lives were not um, affected the way yours was and mine was or, or whatever it was. So maybe the... the the catharsis question goes back again to that question of like, we were never all in this together, right? Since we, you know, since we didn't all have the same skin in the game, ultimately, um, you know, when the buzzer sounded or when it eventually sounds, if it ever sounds, um, there's not going to be the kind of, uh, you know, parade that you have after your team wins the Super Bowl. Dave, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. This is David Marcus. His book is Charade, which you can purchase, I believe, anywhere books are sold. Um, and uh, thanks, Dave, for coming on. You can find his his work at the New York Post going forward. Is that right, Dave? That's correct. And I waited all the way until the end for a sports uh, analogy. So <laughs> I appreciate that <laughs> since I'm I am totally uh, one of those people who knows nothing about sports. I'm, I'm the sports ball girl who has no idea. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on, Dave. Thanks, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, IWF.org or anywhere else that you get your podcasts and YouTube shows. Be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.